St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents Wisdom, recordings of classes on the classic texts of the Orthodox Christian faith by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. So we're going to begin today our class on St. Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, this is going to be a class that's going to go for a while. Uh, this is a proposed schedule that you can see on the syllabus that's available on the website, uh, St. Anne's Orthodox Church, I believe. I can't remember it right off the top of my head. I just put it into the address and it fills in for me. So like most things, I don't remember anything because the internet remembers for me. Uh, but you can find the proposed schedule. Like it, it's proposed, so uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, especially as we get with texts and read, because the main purpose of the class is for us to read the text of Ignatius of Antioch. Has anyone read Ignatius before? A few of you have. Are you basically familiar with who Ignatius is? If you've read him, then you kind of have an idea of who he is. Um, so with today's class, we're gonna do a kind of introduction. So if you feel like, oh no, I didn't read something, you weren't supposed to read anything before class. Uh, but what we're going to do is follow uh, this, uh, this basic format of each letter a class. Um, that might mean that we take an extra class to discuss a particular theme and maybe at the end kind of have an end session as I'm thinking where we kind of talk about all the things that we've picked up because Ignatius is, like Paul, a writer who's on the go, right? He's not sitting down and thinking like, let me think of the first principles of a systematic theology and write them out so that you know when you have any questions in the future about who a bishop is or what the Eucharist is, etc., that you can then turn back to this manual or handbook. These are occasional letters that are sent uh, in the heat of the moment um, that uh, encapsulate, and you can see shadows or you can see images of various uh, aspects of this thought. So at the end, we'll try to recap. So I have some suggested uh, bibliography on here. And if you go to like Amazon and you put in Ignatius of Antioch, well, there's a lot of old translations of Ignatius. So with a lot of old translations of anything, they are now public domain. So guess what? Anybody can copy paste them in and like perfect bound these books and put like minimal uh, design on it and sell it to you for 15 bucks and you realize once you get it that you could have with word, a word document and copy and pasting done a better job than they did. <laughs> so I'm going to try to give you, there is a lot of translations of Ignatius. Um, the reason why being of course because he's basically contemporaneous, he's like right there with the apostles. So there's a lot of interest in Ignatius. Um, so these are, I'm just going to give some of the examples. The ones I'm going to, they're available in the Google Drive folder that you can click on through the syllabus. Uh, and if you are having any kind of technical trouble, just email me and I can just email them to you directly, okay? Um, they are, those are formatted uh, forms of what you can get off of uh, New Advent website, which is a Roman Catholic website, but it has a ton of the fathers uh, up there in Victorian translations. Uh, not to diminish uh, the great works that the Victorians of England, in particular uh, Anglican 
uh, translators and authors, but sometimes it can be a little opaque. Like, it's a little hard to understand what it is they're saying. Um, so but that is what we're going to use because it's the cheapest way to do it. If you want to do something more, these are at least two. Um, the one I'm going to be following, I don't have with me, is the Apostolic Fathers in English by Michael Holmes. He also has a Greek-English one. If you know how to read Greek, you can find him. Uh, he also has a good introduction, uh, a good translation. You can also get early Christian writings. Uh, you can probably find these. It's a Penguin book, so you can probably find it on Amazon for pretty cheap. Uh, it has translations of a lot of various early uh, Christian things uh, that we'll be talking about here in a moment, basically of the Apostolic Fathers. Instead of, I don't know what the marketing was, but this is basically the Apostolic Fathers. It just says early Christian writings. Um, you get uh, an introduction, a very short one, from Andrew Louth on all of these, who is an Orthodox uh, priest in England. This is then, if you're not familiar with this series, is a popular patristics series, uh, which is St. Vladimir Seminary Press. This is a way, as it, the name denotes, the title, it's a way of popularizing the fathers. And by popularizing, it's not like <laughs> uh, cliff notes to the fathers. Uh, it's more of fresh translations to get you away from the Victorian translation and try to put it in contemporary English. By contemporary, I don't mean slang or like vulgar English. I just mean like normal, like written English now. Um, so this is a translation of Ignatius. Just some of these have, uh, if you want to say, if you're into the academic world, apparata, uh, apparatuses attached to it uh, that basically kind of give you uh, the provenance of the manuscripts and the history of the manuscripts and the debates about all that stuff. If you really want to read that, that's fine. I would say don't worry about that because that's not really why you're trying to read it. But a little footnote here about Ignatius and particularly this book because Alistair Stewart uh, in the introduction weighs into uh, Ignatius of Antioch was, um, he is the most explicit early Christian defender of monoepiscopacy, that there's one bishop that basically governs a diocese or an area and who very clearly connects the bishop and the Eucharist, right? So guess who becomes really controversial around the Reformation? Ignatius. Guess what happened a few centuries before the, the uh, Reformation and the Counter-Reformation? You had a lot of additions to Ignatius that were floating around. So it became this huge debate about Ignatius uh, what's, as it says in here, there's pseudo-Ignatius and then there's real Ignatius. Uh, basically, it's agreed that there's seven letters that are authentic and genuine to him, genuine, genuine. Uh, that's, those are the ones that we're going to go over. So if you do buy a book like this and, or you wade into some of the scholarship and you're going, Whoa, what's going on? That's the basic outline of the, the debate. Um, let's see here. It, I mean... I wouldn't put it as equal to something like the donation of Constantine. Is, are people familiar with the donation of Constantine? This idea that Constantine gave over the authority to the, to the Bishop of Rome, and there it's like the authority of Rome is because of this fake document that circulated as authoritative. Was it Ignatius' epistles that 
Right, so the short and long recensions, the question about the recensions of Ignatius, yes, that's what I'm talking about. There's long recensions that are not, uh, that have been basically considered to be spurious, that they're not actually accurate to what Ignatius is saying. Okay. I've never read them. You might read them and find them to be edifying, but just don't think that it's necessarily Ignatius writing it. Uh, this is one thing about, you, you can encounter this in certain Orthodox circles that you can in almost any group. There'll be a, someone out there, I'm sure, has a blog post somewhere that, wants to like have a knockdown, drag out, you know, battle to the death about why the original long recensions of Ignatius are actually historically Ignatius. I don't know what to say to that besides what I just it just kind of like, okay. Um, they um, there's also, let's see here, I covered those. So secondary sources. Uh, this is one secondary source I didn't actually put it on the bibliography, mostly because I hadn't read it yet until like a few days ago, so I didn't know if I was going to suggest it. But this is not bad. This is written by Dominican father, uh, Apostolic fathers, uh, Simon Tugwell, and he has fairly good, they're actually, they're not just the translation, but actually has him covering what the author is going over, and not like in the letter to Ephesians, he says this, this, and that. It's, he's synthesizing Ignatius. Uh, so that's interesting. The book, now we're getting to the book that I would actually suggest uh, if you have the money or maybe you can find somebody to borrow it from. This is Father uh, Andrew Stephen Damick's book, uh, Bearing God, the Life and Works of St. Ignatius of Antioch, the God-Bearer. It's quite a title. I uh, almost lost breath just doing the title, but um, this is kind of a popular pastoral version of Ignatius. So I'll give you an example of the table of contents. Um, Chapter 1, uh, Modernum. Chapter 2, Salvation in Christ. Chapter 3, The Bishop. Chapter 4, Unity of the Church. Chapter 5, The Eucharist. Uh, it's not heavy reading, uh, as in like super academic or anything, but it's good uh, dose of Ignatius. And I'll, I'll be kind of assuming on some background uh, when I talk about a topic from an essay, uh, from an epistle rather, that this is in the background somewhere. Okay. There is another book, and I can see that I have dollar signs next to uh, Damick. It's just one dollar sign, because I think this I got this for like $18. Uh, the next book, Learning Christ, Ignatius of Antioch, and the Mystery of Redemption, is a book that Damick relied on, and it's like $60. So if any of you have some largesse and would like to buy me that book, that would be great. Uh, uh, let's just say I have access to it through Russian means that are not necessarily, uh, I should say, I don't have a physical copy. But I am reading it, so there's that. Um, does anyone have any questions about the syllabus or like what we're going to be doing or what we're trying to do? Forge ahead. Let's go ahead. Okay. So, who is Saint Ignatius? Um, Saint Ignatius. We can just start with his his last name of Antioch. Last name? Ha! Not his last name. Where he comes from? Uh, Ignatius was from Antioch, which is an ancient Roman city. We're all kind of familiar of, it, of Antioch, probably because of the Bible and not because we're buffs on Roman history, right? Antioch, we know of. Why have we heard of Antioch before? That's the first place the, uh, the followers of Christ are called Christians, right? Uh, that's in Acts 11.26. Uh, to this day, there is a patriarchate based out of Antioch. Uh, here in the States, they call it the Antiochian Church, uh, or some people call it the Ant Antiochian or something like this, which 
I've always found to be an odd way to, to say it, but whatever. Um, this is, uh, the, the Patriarch of Antioch had a huge uh, influence historically in the church. Um, they were a kind of uh, inheritors of, or in the provenance of the Syrian fathers, so you have a whole different language, not just Greek, that's operating in the Patriarchate. Uh, Georgia eventually and Armenia and all these kind of places they were originally under uh, the Patriarchate of Antioch because they their their land spread that way so Antioch is a venerable see within the Christian world it's part of the Pentarchy that later develops right the five uh, head patriarchs Rome Constantinople Jerusalem Alexandria and Antioch and I won't go into a side off about by Jerusalem took a lot longer actually for Jerusalem to become one of the five, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Rome, part of the reason why Antioch was what it was is because it was a large and influential city in the whole area. And you're talking about the Syrian, uh, Antioch kind of covered, uh, it's in now in Turkey, the, the ruins of Antioch and what is now the modern city, if I'm saying this correctly, Antarctica or something like that, you can hear Antiochia or something like that, you can hear Antioch in the name uh, in Turkey. So it was also had a large population of Jews, which will become significant for us in reading St. Ignatius because uh, Antioch was a place where there was conflict in the early church between Jews and Gentiles. As we know about from the book of Acts, there was conflict uh, even in Jerusalem, right, about the divvying up of food. So there was the question, how exactly do we live together when we have kind of different cultures and we've come to Christ? You have Jews who have been observant uh, Jews and then you have Gentiles who are kind of coming in and, you know, kind of frazzled or, you know, not put together like the Jews are. Uh, and so there's conflict of how exactly this is all supposed to work together. Um, this will become important for us because St. Ignatius is a part of uh, Christianity is still kind of uh, forming, defining itself, the structure of Christianity, uh, who exactly it is. Because like you have in the book of Acts, uh, the apostles, they've become Christians, they're following Christ, the, the, the scent of the Holy Spirit has occurred upon them, they're breaking bread and having wine together, you got the, the beginning basically of the Eucharistic meals uh, and fellowship and the teaching of apostolic doctrine, all of this, and they're still doing prayers in the temple. So they're still going to the temple for prayer. So there's a kind of this time where things are, I want to say they're not clear. There's an obvious clarity about who Jesus Christ is, but how all that's going to play out, like now we can say, you know, the Jews are in the, the synagogue or well, I forget the name, because I don't know if it's big enough here in Oak Ridge. I know there's a Jewish like center, but I don't know if they call it a synagogue because I don't know if they have enough uh, observant Jews for it to be a synagogue. But there's a division, right? And we kind of assume this division, but in this first two, 300 years, these divisions are still kind of shaking out. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about the traditions around St. Ignatius as, uh, there's one thing that we don't really know much about is uh, growing up, right? With a lot of these early saints, you might know like a thing here or there, but it's not like a 19th century history where you psychoanalyze them when they're a kid, you know, they went to boarding school and that really messed with them. And so therefore they were like this when they're older, which you get with a lot of like 19th century or great uh, men and women of history. This is the reason why the way they are. We don't know anything about St. Ignatius like that. 
Uh, some ways, maybe thank God, because this just can get annoying. But uh, there is a tradition of Ignatius. Do you remember in the book of Matthew, uh, where Christ, I should have put this down, but let me pull it up on my, just so I can get it absolutely correct. Where there's a little boy brought to Jesus. He says, basically, let me just get there real quick. Jesus says to the disciples, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called the little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, early tradition has that the boy that was called out by Jesus and then said, like, you need to be like him was Ignatius, uh, which is a fascinating. There's all these little, you know, we always wonder, who is this person in the Bible? Well, tradition usually on some level says, well, we knew that person because that was, you know, the Bishop of Antioch a uh, hundred years ago. Um, he became uh, the third Bishop of Antioch in 69 AD. Let that know, 69. When did Jesus die? 33, 34, somewhere in there. It's kind of, so, that means he was a bishop 30 years later. Uh, when are the Gospels written? There's a lot of debate about this. But you, Pauline epistles are being written in like the 50s, and you're getting Gospels in like the 60s and 70s. Maybe some even push them a little bit later than that, that that might be a little bit wishful thinking that it was written that early. So we've got Ignatius is fairly early. Uh, fairly early. He's extremely early. Um, he was contemporaneous with... Uh, the Apostle John, because he was the disciple of the Apostle John. He was also uh, peers with St. Polycarp, who he writes a letter to, Bishop of Smyrna, uh, which is now present-day Izmir uh, on the coast in Turkey. Uh, but St. Polycarp is another of the kind of apostolic fathers. Um, it's also said that Ignatius, if you go to a Greek monastery, has anyone been to a Greek monastery here? Or maybe in the Roman church. I'm not as familiar with Roman ecclesiastical uh, practices, but we have in the beginning of the liturgy, we call them the antiphons, right? Do you know what it means to sing antiphonally? Back and forth, right? You have a left choir and a right choir. A lot of Byzantine choirs will do this, mostly because you need to take a break. <laughs> I think there's a, really, there's a real practical reason for this. But it's also, it's beautiful to be able to kind of have, especially when you like the polyleos at a vigil, where you can have this kind of back and forth. Well, historically, according to Socrates, uh, is an early church, not the Socrates, you know, <laughs> took the hymnlock, but Socrates, the church historian, there is a Saint Socrates, there's a Saint Aristotle, there's a Saint Plato, so had to differentiate here. Um, you have uh, that Ignatius was the one who began antiphonal singing, uh, doing the left, right, right, left. At some point in the epistle, he even makes a musical uh, analogy. So, um, Father, did you say that uh, he was a disciple of St. John also? St. John, yes. Okay, all right. Yep. And then you have also, you have here, uh, Irenaeus of Leon uh, has, uh, recalls hearing uh, Polycarp, uh, St. Ignatius's uh, brother bishop, uh, hearing Polycarp preach when he was a kid. So you have a direct line of 
I knew him, he knew him, you know. There's continuity in the early church. Um, let's see here. So what St. Ignatius is probably the most famous for and is kind of depicted in the icon is that he was martyred. So remember where Ignatius was martyred? Rome. So he's an early, uh, even though he's a Syrian, uh, if you could say Syrian, I, don't, I think they would say Syrian, but he might just be a Greek speaker. It gets, it's more complicated back then because uh, everything is kind of mashed together. Uh, he's an early Roman martyr, and as most of the icons, and even on your syllabus, you have uh, a sketch of him being killed by lions. Uh, if you, let's look at the map real quick that I handed out. This is the a proposed route that Ignatius took. I obviously found this on the internet. I did not take a long time writing this up, <laughs> drawing this. Uh, but it gives you a basic idea. He goes from Antioch, he goes to Tarsus, he goes to kind of the middle of Turkey, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis. Then he stops in Smyrna, and he writes the letters to Ephesus, Magnesia, Chalice, and Rome. Then he moves up to Troas, and then he goes, uh, sorry, at Troas, he then writes the letters to Philadelphia, Smyrna, and to his friend Polycarp. It's the one epistle of Ignatius where he's writing to a person and not just to a congregation. Then he over, heads over to Philippi. I think Damick might even have a map in here where he kind of continues his, what, his route to Rome. We have these epistles according to tradition because Polycarp actually saved the letters. Um, he got one himself and then he saved the letters and it's uh, well known in the early church, Ignatius. So there's many references to Ignatius from early writers. Um, he, does anybody remember the, his feast day? When his feast day falls? So I always as associate Ignatius with Christmas because Ignatius is, and I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head, uh, but it's basically in December. It's on the ramping up to Christmas. There you go. Look in the uh, Manan and tell us, soon to be deacon. You didn't bring your uh, bifocals? <laughs> But you get what's, what's great, the reason I even bring that up is because the hymnody in, in Advent, as we're kind of, what is Sorry, it? It's the 20th, which is the beginning of the four feasts. Exactly. So the 20th, which is the beginning of the four feasts of uh, Advent, uh, sorry, not Advent, Nativity, uh, which then you get specific hymnody then picks up uh, and themes start getting, because there's a reason why Ignatius, the God bearer, right, is mm -hmm. chosen for this. Uh, He's kind of one of those prototypical early church martyrs. He's a bishop, and his, the words that he says, uh, as you'll read, uh, you'll see why he's chosen. There's an ancient text that you're welcome to read uh, called The Martyrdom of Ignatius. Uh, that's not written by Ignatius, obviously, uh, but it's about him, and it outlines uh, kind of the circumstances around his martyrdom. So he was martyred under Trajan, who was an early, if you, if you pay attention to the Synoxarian, the Synoxarian is the uh, lives of the saints that are read for each day um, that you can find online or you can buy expensive copies because there's different renditions of this in the, the various uh, kind of ethnic traditions in the Orthodox Church. Um, 
but uh, you get uh, Trajan is one of the names, Diocletian, there's all these kind of famous uh, emperors who are in charge who basically decide, I don't like Christians, and gives all permission to the governors, like, you know, you can kill them because they're creating problems. Uh, Trajan is one of those. Uh, and so it's this dialogue between Trajan and Ignatius. Does anyone have any questions? Again, for this class, we're just setting out kind of the context of who Ignatius is. Uh, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about the early church uh, and then some themes that we'll find so that you can, when, when you come upon something in the text, you can say, oh yeah, we kind of talked about that already. Uh, and then next week we'll start with the epistles. But I'm going to go ahead, probably have about 10 more minutes of material and we'll be done, okay? So I've already been mentioning and talking about the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, this was a title, it's obviously not a title that uh, descended from heaven and was given to the, them. Uh, this was basically, it started when, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it's like 17th or 18th century when they started kind of collating and bringing these things together. You can probably imagine why it was those centuries, because there's a ton of debate about this stuff. Uh, and so there's a question like, so what was the early church like? And so everyone's arguing about Paul. So some are like, well, Ignatius says this, and Ignatius is, you know, the disciple of St. John the Apostle, therefore he has this authority uh, that gives a, a con more context to Paul. Because Paul can be really hard to read. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah? Have you ever tried to slog through an epistle of Paul? Especially something like Romans? Uh, if you're kind of new at it, it, it's incredibly hard. And even what happens if you've gone at, at Romans multiple times, you can get stuck in a rut or like an interpretive framework. And then you can totally explain like the first, what, eight chapters of Romans. And then after that, it's, you know, you don't really know what to do. I'm talking about like predestination here, like everything is crammed within this framework. Um, so, or something like a, a framework of like, a debate about justification, right? Which becomes the debate of the Reformation, the kind of Reformation. Uh, is that what Paul means with the debates that are later occurring? Is he talking about something else? Uh, it can be helpful to be able to kind of re-gear or change lanes and come at it, the epistle in a different direction. So um, who are some of the authors of, who are called kind of apostolic fathers? Again, this is just, you know, a title given. You think of it so we know Ignatius. Justin is a little bit later. Justin would qualify more with like the like apologetic, uh, set later second third century. I think they're also do what? Nope, a little bit later. Uh, later. I put Dionysius fourth century. Clement, Polycarp. Clement, Polycarp. I had a, a, a heads up with Clem, uh, Polycarp. Clement. Polycarp. We can also say like not without names of people, but also some other. The Didache. These other two you probably maybe never even heard of. Shepherd of Hermas, and then there's one more. Barnabas. What were you saying? I think that's a little bit later too. So maybe part of what, like with Irenaeus, Justin, and the Epistle to Diognetus. Um, and some other random things, 
maybe what the difference is with apostolic fathers, they have particular shared themes, so they get put together like that, that like the epistle of Diognetus doesn't address structure or the unity of the church in the same way that these texts do. So these texts uh, are written and these people live around the formation of the canon of scripture, right? And I don't want to sidetrack into a whole discussion about the formation of scripture, but there's fluidity in the early church for a few centuries about what exactly establishes the canon. We think back, obviously, because we can pick up a book and say this is the Holy Bible, that this is what the Holy Bible was. Uh, I'm sure many of you, if you're already in the Orthodox Church, you've kind of realized this, but there's, you know, not just that there's books uh, that are Old Testament that belong or additions to that, like Greek Daniel that has additions than what you're used to in a Protestant uh, Old Testament. Uh, there's also the fact that an epistle of Clement, for example, was treated like apostolic writing and was read in the church, if I'm remembering correctly, in the Roman church for a few centuries. Um, the Shepherd of Hermas, Hermas and uh, these other books were considered authoritative. So there was not this idea that you got this solid, like, New Testament and Paul, Peter, maybe James, somewhere, John, you know, you kind of get these, like, strong figures, and that's it in early Christianity. Uh, there's other texts that are floating around. Um, this is so you can t the, with that fluidity you have a lot of debate about who the church is right who belongs in the church who stays in the church that's why you'll have as we will read in Ignatius that you're having issues with division in the church if you've read Paul in the Corinthian discourse there's a lot of dissension already happening from very early on um, but you also have debates about the structure of the church what exactly is a church supposed to be like or not even debates but just saying like this is the way the church is uh, and you also have fighting of particular heresies, which we also already see in the New Testament, in the Johannine epistles, in the Pauline epistles, Petrine epistles, um, about did God come in the flesh, uh, you know, these kind of things. So there's a great quote from Yaroslav Pelikan. Is anyone familiar with Yaroslav? Sort of. He was a great, I always, there's a, there's a story from the life of Saint, uh, <laughs> of C.S. Lewis <laughs> not saint uh, where he how many languages did he know really early on he knew a lot really early on because he was trained in a particular way like you knew Latin you knew Greek you might play around with Hebrew because it's got different letters uh, but there's this whole uh, group of men that were created you know just a hundred years ago uh, and I think of like Father George Florovsky, uh, an Orthodox theologian of the last century, where they just know a lot. So there, there used to be a, a, a competence uh, and just theological like formation that happened, philosophical, etc. Yaroslav um, Pelikan was one of those greats. He he wrote one of some the great series of like the history of dogma. Uh, I believe it's in five volumes. Um, but he has this great quote about theology. He says, the first 100 to 600 years, the theologians of the church were bishops. He looked through, they're almost all bishops. They have some kind of pastoral role, but they're also, because bishops are supposed to be teachers, the weight of apostolic tradition and the defense of it was on bishops' shoulders, right? 
So what you get then, you get to about 600 to 1500, you have a shift. The theologians are now monks, right? You think about you think about the medieval church, or I don't like saying medieval because that creates a whole other problematic. But you know, folks from that time they're almost all monks, theologians. So what's the next shift? So first you have bishops, then you have monks, then you have professors. <laughs> Post fifteen hundred, and he uses Gregory the Great, who's a Gregory of Rome. He was a bishop and a monk. He's a monastic, so he's this perfect figure, and he kind of like straddles this change. Uh, and then guess who his uh, perfect example is? Who was a monk and then became like then shifted more to like a professor. Started a whole Protestant movement. Luther. So it's just this fascinating way to think about theology in the historic church. You had men who had pastoral, um, I'll also say economic, because early bishops also had a lot of, they were patrons of the community. They took care of a lot of things. They took care of the widows. They took care of the uh, helping to make sure everybody was actually taken care of. Uh, there was something beyond even just their like theological um, defense of the faith, etc. They were men who led the church. And you have this shift over time. So, Themes of the Apostolic Fathers, they were apologists of the institutional church. And I, I realize once I say institutional church, for some people that will be a stumbling block, and other people that will be like a banner, a rallying cry, right? So by institutional church, what I mean is that the church uh, is rooted in history and has particular structures. It has, uh, it's not something that is basically every generation, everything is up for debate again. Uh, but that there's something solid and particular that we are saying this is what we should be like or what we should follow. So they were apologists of the institutional church because they're dealing with two extremes. And we might be able to see some of this today even. They had like uh, kind of pagan, you have a lot of converts, right, from Gentile background. So think about like in India, right? Jesus can like move into the pantheon of gods and basically that's okay. You can still have... I don't know, the other gods, you can have Jesus, he's just, you know, God too. So they're having this kind of pagan dilution of the faith that, um, you know, you can go to church, uh, but you can also go offer sacrifices. I mean, think about the Pauline. Paul's already talked about this a lot. You have kind of then that kind of like diluting of the faith, then to something else where it's like, this is the faith, but it's, it's Gnostic speculation. Like, Jesus is God, but let me tell you something more. Jesus actually shows you the secrets of the eons and how to, like, get to, it's almost like Donkey Kong or something, right? You remember Donkey Kong? Is that kind of dating myself a little bit? <laughs> Where, you know, you had to go up the thing, and then the bad guy's always at the top throwing stuff at you. Well, that's, this is a really bad idea of like what Gnosticism is, but it's this kind of idea that like the, the world is a mucky place and you gotta gotta ascent out and then you can you know get out, escape out the, the hatch. Um, so yeah, they like believed and they're like we're in the right thing, but it's not. They can see where where does Jesus fit into this kind of like you can put Jesus on certain aspects of that, but that's not really what Christianity is. So you have these two kind of extremes that they're trying to defend. Uh, who Jesus Christ is, what the apostolic teachings are, and what it means to be a part of the church. Uh, so then even kind of outside of these two, then you get Judaism as the other challenge. 
And what do I mean by Judaism as a challenge? Same as kind of like what Paul was dealing with. How exactly do we relate to the law? What does it mean for Gentiles to be a part of the body? What does it mean for me? I'm not Jewish, ethnically or background, but if I was a Jew and became a Christian, what, do I, what am I supposed to do now? Do I, am I supposed to keep this? Am I supposed to circumcise my, my boys? Am I supposed, you know, all these kind of questions. Uh, and so you can see, uh, like in the Didache, and which is heavily Jewish thematics going on, the Epistle of Barnabas, they're trying to figure out how exactly do we relate uh, to Judaism and the Jewish law. The third aspect I would say is belonging to the church. Uh, I've kind of mentioned this a few times, but what does it mean to belong to the church? In particular, Clement is the first to talk about and defend something like apostolic succession. The argument kind of being Irenaeus really fleshes this out, but the apostles gave us this and we're right because the apostles gave it to us. Uh, Ignatius is the first to say Catholic church. Uh, so when we get to that, we'll talk about the context of what Ignatius means uh, because that phrase is, gathers meaning over time. So to end, we'll just kind of, I'm going to just kind of briefly note what the basic themes of the Ignatian corpus are. Um, as you're reading through Ignatius, uh, the first is martyrdom, of course. He knows he's on his way to be killed. So he talks about it. We bring up debates in early Christianity a little bit around martyrdom because it was not seen as virtuous for you, you know. You knew that, especially later, for example, when under the Turkish yoke or the Islamic yoke in Greece, uh, you could go out into the square and be like, Jesus is God, Muhammad's a, and uh, come and get me. And everyone would say like, you're an idiot. <laughs> That is not, you're, that's not martyrdom, that's foolery. Like, that's, so there's this debate even in the early church of, you know, if you have a chance to be able to get away, you should go, go away. And there's times where you're gonna be cornered and you have to do it, or there's like something on the line and you, so there's that debate going on. And we might take a little side glance at some of the kind of early matrix of talking about martyrdom from 4th Maccabees, um, which is a book that, kind of gives the framework of talking about uh, martyrdom. That's in Judaism before Christianity. Because of the challenge of Judaism, you apparently have uh, Ignatius addresses Judaizing, uh, which is also uh, something that even goes up into like Chrysostom's day, uh, which is basically kind of Jewish Christians uh, pulling away from the Christian church or doing Jewish practices and seeming to kind of dilute or uh, mix things together when things are uh, becoming decisively different from each other. Uh, the other thing that you, then you have is the challenge is docetism. Does anyone know what a docetist is? Or... It was explained to me in college as a theology of invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> <laughs> so a theology of the invasion of the body snatchers. I was, I was traumatized by that movie when I was a kid, especially the ending, because they don't really show you what happens, right? I guess you're supposed to, have you ever seen the movie? Yeah. Oh, you should see the movie now. Uh, I, yeah, I don't show your eight-year-olds that movie, because that's a weird movie. Um, I view that as like modern social commentary, <laughs> relevant the age of the body snatchers. <laughs> so so in, in plain English, what does docetism do? What does it think about Jesus? 
like seeming, that right? He only seemed to be human. Basically, Jesus was a ghost. He didn't really die on the cross. You thought you saw him die, but he didn't really die because God can't die on the cross. It's an idea of who God is and a problem. You can see exactly why the cross is a, a challenge to that. You know, we definitely disagree with that. The other theme of the Ignatian corpus is then, um, and you can see why with this, he's, he's really, and I don't want to say obsessed because that makes it seem like he's like pathological, but he loves to talk about the unity of the church that's grounded, uh, so how about I say, the unity of the, of the Christian who's grounded because of the unity of the church with Jesus Christ, and it's unified with the body of Christ, the church, because Jesus Christ has unified himself with the flesh, and because Jesus Christ is in total union with the Father. So it's unity all the way down. Jesus is uni united perfectly with the Father. The Jesus has united himself perfectly with humanity, with the flesh. The church is perfectly united with Jesus Christ, so we are to be perfectly united and have our flesh-spirit alignment correct. I mean, it's kind of like Paul in a different, transposed in a different way. Just saw a car drive by, that was weird. Um, there's a lot of great quotes from, uh, especially when Ignatius talks about the Eucharist. This is, is the matrix of this. Um, so just the very last thing is just personal connection to St. Ignatius for me. Uh, it's something actually, if you want a review of some of the stuff that I've said, uh, basics of some of these things, I just grabbed out of Damick's book, but you can get a little bit more background in it in the introduction to Damick's book. Um, but the argument of the centrality for me, of, for the importance to me of Ignatius, is the first, that he's basically right there with the apostles. Because for me, when I realized what I was in and growing up in the Restoration Movement did not make sense of the New Testament, then where do you go? <laughs> what do you look for? Because I could say, okay, I can pick up Paul and I can read him through a, a liberation like lens or like Marxist lens. I can put on the feminist lens. I can put on this lens or I can, you know, just kind of make up what I want. I was like, no, there's got to be something more. Ignatius getting, it helps to get context for Paul to be able to actually see him uh, and the way that the church is and what tradition is by looking at other early authors. So Ignatius is one of those key figures who is arguing for the basic apostolic tradition, uh, the importance of the bishop. Uh, he doesn't really talk about apostolic succession, but he does talk about the importance of being a part of the historical body because there's no other body besides the historical body. You need to be connected to it, right? There's unity, how I just outlined the unities. You need to be united with the body. Um, I'd also say just as a personal note, Chelsea and I were married at St. Ignatius uh, Church in Franklin, Tennessee. So that's also another personal note for St. Ignatius. Does anyone have any questions about St. Ignatius or how we're going to proceed? Of course, as you actually dig into the materials, you know, I suggest printing them out, writing on them, you know, put a question mark. Uh, one of the things that I want us to underline and see here is uh, outside of just talking about his text, I'm going to bring a lot of Pauline texts to talk through seeing uh, Ignatius 
through Pauline and maybe even Johannine because he was a disciple of St. John. And so there's an argument to be made that John is also in the background. Because there are many places in Ignatius where you're like, <clears throat> am I reading Paul or am I reading Ignatius? Um, and, but he doesn't do it in a way that he's like slavishly repeating Paul. He like lives and breathes the theological uh, framework that he's you know, operating in. And so he talks like that because that's what early Christians talked like. 